The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Our study today is verses 18 through 29, and as I did last week, or didn't do last week, I should say, I, I'm not going to read the full text again. I trust that you are familiar with it from the past uh, three weeks that we've talked about this text. This is the fourth of the seven churches of Asia. This particular part is the letter to the church at Thyatira. And Thyatira was a city that was of less importance than the other ones where the Lord had his churches, the other cities of these uh, seven that we have the letters to. And most likely, the church at Thyatira was smaller than the other churches. The Bible doesn't give a membership count for churches in the New Testament because it's not the number of members that indicate the spirituality of a church. Numbers don't determine whether the people in that church are great servants of God, and it certainly doesn't determine the status of a person in heaven, what, what church that you belong to that is as far as the size of that church is concerned. But when churches, or rather preachers, get together at Bible conferences, this is a question that's always asked. We get together, we talk to other preachers, and always ask this question, how is your church doing? And usually... The answer to that question is not about how are you doing spiritually, but how many people do you have in your church? And if you don't have as many people in your church as I have in mine, then you must not be doing very well. But that's not the way that the Lord measures. The Lord doesn't judge that way. Fifty people that serve the Lord are better than 500 in a church that don't. And 15 church members that stand on the Word of God and don't compromise will accomplish more for the Lord than a church filled with a liberal bunch of entertainment-type people that have no doctrinal foundation. But it's also true that being small means nothing. Because we're a small church, that doesn't make us more spiritual. Uh, a church might be small because it's driven everybody away. It's small because they have a rotten attitude. It's small because they don't have any care and concern for each other. And so that certainly does not make for a good church. But the church at Thyatira, it may indeed have been a small church, and it might have been a church that was seeking to grow larger. All of us should, I think, try to do that. We just don't want to remain small to be small. But we do want to reach more people with the gospel of Christ. And Thyatira may have been a church that wanted to grow larger but as we read the text, we, we see that if this is their method of getting to that place, and they're going about it the wrong way. They are, at least for now, one of the Lord's churches, but they're headed in the wrong direction. And what they did was unbiblical and endangering to their status as one of the Lord's churches. Now, if you look at verse number 1 in the beginning of chapter 2, this is part of the letter to Ephesus. This is what the Lord said to them. And to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. There Christ says that he stands amidst 
the churches and that he holds the pastors in his hands. And how long that a church and a pastor stays in the hands of the Lord Jesus is according to his faithfulness, the church's faithfulness, to preach the word and to remain true to the faith of Jesus and the apostles. And I want you to understand that I'm not talking about our salvation because our salvation is always secure. We are always securely held in the hands of Christ and of the Father. We can't lose our salvation. But it is possible for us to lose our effectiveness for the Lord and it's possible for us to be set aside from God's service because of our unfaithfulness. And so our testimony may fail. And rather than being a help to the Lord... We're now in the way. We're in the way of God accomplishing what He wants to do. And an entire church can be set aside because of sin and no longer to be considered one of the Lord's churches. And if that happens, it very well could be that the issues are much deeper and we might have a problem of salvation. There may be too many people in the church that aren't true believers, and they aren't faithful because they never had real saving faith. Each of us needs to ask ourselves the question, what would this church be if everybody was just like me? Could the church continue to do its work if all the members did what I do? And that's a sobering thought for Brian Baptist members, that our church might not even exist if the level of commitment of every member was like your commitment. Now, I, I pointed out verse number 1 in the church at Ephesus because I wanted you to see that, that Christ holds the stars in His right hand. And that's, that is an important statement because the right hand in Scripture is the dominant hand. Being in the right hand means in an elevated position. The stars that it speaks of are the pastors, also called the angels of the churches, the messengers of the churches. And because of that elevated position, they have the responsibility to speak the word to God's people. And pastors have great accountability to the Lord. And remember, if you have a desire to become a leader in the Lord's church, then you've got to be willing to accept that responsibility that goes along with it. There is great accountability for being in a leadership position. Now, in a good measure, the pastor is responsible for the sanctification of the people. And what we can do is we can help you to grow in your walk with the Lord, or we can hinder your growth. And that depends on our faithfulness to teach you the Word of God. And so as the shepherd of the church, the pastor must lead in the right direction. And I believe that people ought to appreciate a pastor that will study the Word and will preach the Word and give you the doctrine that will establish you strongly in the faith. It is good doctrine that will keep you theologically fit and will keep you from falling into moral mistakes that will affect your effectiveness or uh, will hinder your effectiveness for Christ. Now, cutting straight to the root of the Lord's rebuke to this church in Thyatira, we can see here is actually the heartbeat of their problem. It's leadership. This is a failed leadership problem in the church. I'm not going to take time to go back through the preliminary parts of the outline covered in the last message, but rather I want to pick up again at our third observation where we left off the last time, and that is the problems that demoralized. Problems that demoralized. We've talked about the position declared that's 
Christ's personal description as the judge, and we discussed the positives detected, and that's that small part that we saw in verse number 19, where Jesus commended the church for some things that they did right. There were some in the church that were faithful, but there weren't enough of them. They were about to be drowned in a tidal wave of judgment, and just that small remnant of people that was doing the right thing was not enough to keep this ship from sinking. Now the issue, or issues, that exacerbated the demise of this church are two major ones, leadership and doctrine. Bad leadership will lead to bad doctrine. So first is the wrong person in leadership. Verse number 20, Notwithstanding, the Lord says, notwithstanding, that is notwithstanding the good things that I've just said in verse number 19, notwithstanding that, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. I won't take time to explain the leadership problem. You can check that out from the last sermon. If you didn't hear the last sermon, well, I'll just give you a little bit at least. There's just this big clue that pops out in this verse. There is a Jezebel in leadership. Now, Jezebel, in one sense, can refer to anyone who's immoral. She takes her namesake, in this case, from the Queen of Israel in 1 Kings, who was a very wicked woman. But I don't believe that the reference is general not just men and or a man or a woman. The Lord said Jezebel because this leader in the church was a woman. She called herself a prophetess, which restricts the meaning not to male and female, but to one gender, a woman. A woman was in leadership, and that is not the place for a woman in a New Testament church. So she was out of place, she's out of order, she upset God's created order, and God had established that, that men are supposed to lead women, and we're not to change that order that was made at the very beginning of the creation. And certainly God did not change it when the church began. There is no distinction in men and women in salvation. There is no distinction in men and women in their worth to the church, the body of Christ. But there is a distinction in leadership. Now, if you want to listen to last week's message, you can get all the scriptural proofs of that. It's incontrovertible. So, as I stated just a moment ago, the leadership position has the most potential to damage the church or to help the church. And here we have a church that starts its downward plunge through leadership, which inevitably leads to the next problem. And that is the wrong precepts of doctrine. It wouldn't be fair to blame the woman in the church that usurped authority over the men. It's not fair to blame her because this problem started with the men that allowed it to happen. Men were in the leadership. This was a New Testament church. So it didn't start out with women leaders. Men were in the leadership, and they're the ones that let the woman gain her position. They compromised their doctrine to let her, and so they were the first to transgress. I remember last week we read in 1 Timothy 
the created order there, Paul said to Timothy that the woman was the first in transgression. The woman is the first in the transgression of the created order, but here we see that man, the men, are the first in transgression of church order. Because they let down their responsibility. They let it down and they let a woman into leadership and they were weak and mushy and they did not quit themselves like men. And I don't say that with a male chauvinist attitude. I mean that godly men must stick to the responsibility to lead, whether that's in their home or whether it's in the church. And these men did not lead. And that falls back on a weakness of doctrine. So the woman's not the first problem. They were a problem, but not the first problem. The men are. And this is what happens. Women will take over when men don't lead. It's a sorry man. It doesn't have the backbone to stand up to a woman. I think about that every time I see Nancy Pelosi on TV. It bothers me greatly. Um, God has an order for society and He has an order for the church. I'll leave the society alone for today and talk about the problem in the church. It's, and this is not my diatribe against women. I'm not against women. I am for women. But I know that it's best for all of us to follow the Lord's command, not ours. Wrong leadership always leads in the wrong direction, whether that's male or female. So they have this problem. They led a woman into leadership and she seduced the Lord's servants and said, you can commit fornication and eat things that are sacrificed to idols. Well, that sounds like a strange problem to us. So at this point, we need to back up and we need to reconsider the background of Thyatira and what it was that led to these two issues. Now, you remember, I hope, that Ephesus and Pergamos were two churches plagued with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Verse number 14 relates that problem to the sins of Balaam, who in the Old Testament caused Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. So the sins of Thyatira are of the same type as the sins of, of Israel. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that Old Testament stories, the things that we read in all those Old Testament happenings, those stories are preserved for us so that we learn not to fail and to fall into the same sins that happened in the past. Well, here you have Thyatira, very capable of reading Old Testament scriptures, and yet they fall into one of those sins that happened in the past. Sacrificing to idols and then eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was widespread. It was reaching into all the churches, and so we find it here in Thyatira as well. It is a doctrine, essentially this is what it comes down to, it is a doctrine of compromise with the world to gain acceptance with the world and thereby end persecution. Earlier, we learned that Thyatira was a blue-collar town. It's a town with trade guilds, much like trade unions today, and membership in the guild was essential to hold a job in the city. Each of those guilds had their patron god. And members of the guild were expected that they would worship the patron god. And if they didn't, then it was believed that the god would not favor them. So this patron god, he's like the good luck charm, much like a patron saint in Catholicism. And each guild had their, had their charm and they had to swear allegiance to the God of the guild. And if you didn't swear allegiance to that God, you didn't work. So Christians in Thyatira are stuck. What are we going to do? 
We need jobs. How are we going to work? How are we going to support our families? How will we live if we refuse to bow to the guild, the God of the guild? What happens if we get kicked out of the guild? Well, along comes Jezebel, and she's worked her way into the leadership of the church, and she has a solution for this problem. And she said, Christ will understand if you compromise. It's okay to compromise a little if that's for something good. It's all right to compromise a little if that's to keep your job. And so they could swear allegiance to the guild God, and they can keep Jesus too. Understand, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. And it's the same excuse that Christians make today. We've got to do what we've got to do. I mean, what else are we going to do? Uh, if it's incompatible with the Word of God, that's okay, because God understands. God understands that things are tough. It's hard to get along in this world. It's hard to find a good job. It's, it's hard if we just don't go with the world on these things. God understands that. But here, what is it that Christians in Thyatira must do? Worship the gods. That sounds like a simple thing, but let's understand what that means. Worship the gods. Worship means practicing gross immorality. The worship of the pagan gods and their rituals included sex acts. But you've got to do. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. It may be fornication. Here refers to idol worship, since the Bible often describes adultery as, or idolatry as adultery and fornication. Now, more specifically, when you see these terms connected with the New Testament church, we would be talking about adultery. And it means stepping out on God for another lover. Can you think of it in that term, those terms? Stepping out on God for another lover. You see, we are the bride of Christ. We belong to Him. We are a spouse to Christ. And to be unfaithful to Christ and to compromise with the world is to commit adultery against Christ. Now think about the comparison. Isn't this disgusting? Unfaithful men and unfaithful women in marriage is a disgusting, filthy thing. You can't make that pretty because that's dishonesty. It's the worst form of dishonesty. Men and women get all starry-eyed and flirtatious with people at work and they fall in lust. And that goes against everything that a Christian is. Do you feel this way? Do you feel disgustingly dirty when you sin against God? Do you see that as stepping out on God and doing the nasty every time that you're unfaithful to Him? This is what the Bible means when it speaks of Jezebel and her fornication. Eating things sacrificed to idols is here emblematic of taking part in sin to maintain social status. The guild had their feasts to their gods. Christians were expected to take part. The leftover meat from the sacrifices then was consumed. They, they gorged like gluttons and drank their wine and they had their orgies and they called that worship. And Christians had to do it if they expected to keep their jobs. So Jezebel surveys the situation. She says, that's fine. Be the life of the party. Have a good time. It's only once in a while. I mean, after all, every day's not a feast day. Not every day. So 
you can do that and then you can go back to church with your Sunday clothes and you can sing in the choir and you can teach your Sunday school class and you can put the halo back on when you go to church. Don't worry. God understands what you had to do. Now, folks, I think we need to look at Scripture and be practical about things. Part of expository preaching is to take what the Word of God says, this information, and get practical with it. So if we're going to get practical here, then I would have to say, I I don't suppose that there's any of you that's ever been asked to eat meat sacrificed to idols. If you were, you'd probably refuse. I hope you would, because that'd be kind of weird. People that sacrifice animals and eat their meat, they're probably not the kind of people you want to hang out with. Some mornings I get up very early. I can't sleep, so sometimes at 2, 30, 3 o'clock in the morning I go into the office and I start to study. Somewhere up the street there's a, there's a neighbor that has an annoying barking dog. And this one's of the yapping variety, the worst kind. You know, the little, little I think, a lab dog or something. And those are the very worst. And this dog barks all the time. And so I'm tempted sometimes just to go up there and make a sacrifice to the God of silence. And if you come to my house and you say, I'll do that for you. I'll take care of that problem, Jorge. I'll take care of that problem for you. I'll kill that dog and I'll eat it if necessary. Jorge would do it. Just ask him. He would do it. And I'd say, well, if if Jorge does that, I don't mind. I'll have fellowship with him anyway if he sacrifices that dog. But you look at this and you say, well, what do I have to do with Jezebel? What does this mean to me? She lived 3,000 years ago. So what can I I figure from this? How How does this mean anything to me? Well, for starters, we see comparisons that there are many Jezebels in modern pulpits. This is an example. It's an Old Testament story that teaches a lesson for New Testament believers. Satan tempts Christians every day with compromise. In Thyatira, it's a work situation. Things haven't changed since then. Does anybody here ever get tempted at work to do something you shouldn't do? Christians get twisted up with compromises every day. In Thyatira, they had to attend work functions that were ungodly. And the refreshments at these work functions were sacrificial meat and wine. Well, I have to ask, what about, what about the work party today? The Christmas party? Or the New Year's party? That's the time to break out the booze. That's the time to get lewd. What do you use that time for? As a Christian, isn't Christmas time a really good time for you to take a stand for Christ? We're getting close to Christmas now, not that far away. What are you going to do? Are you willing to let people at work know that you're different? Have people at work seen enough of your Christian witness that they don't really expect to see you at the booze feast? And I would say that one of the best ways to let the boys and the boss know that you're a Christian is to stay away. I remember a few years ago there was... um, member of our church that told me, I won't be at church on Sunday night before Christmas because church interferes with the Christmas party at work. And I have to ask, well, what are your idols that you have compromised with and how have you compromised your testimony to stay in with your guild? You can't win people to the Lord if they don't 
know that you're different from them. If they don't see a difference, I don't think you're going to find an excuse on this that Jesus will accept. And I'll tell you why. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. Let's see if we can find a compromising Jesus. These are instructions for the disciples. And I don't believe the Lord gives any quarter to the world. So let's just read a few verses of what Jesus says on this subject in Matthew chapter 10. First, we'll look at verse number 22. Matthew 10, 22. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Verse 32. Whoso therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Now here we ask, isn't compromise, if you want to, what does he mean, denying? Well, isn't compromise, isn't that a denial of Jesus? If you accommodate the world, is that not denial of Christ? And then verse 38, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Taking up the cross means to take every bit of shame and disgrace that you must endure for Christ. It's the suffering that's put on Christians because they're different. Christ doesn't offer an excuse. He doesn't say, I know it's tough. I know it's hard on you, so I'll give in a little bit. I'll let you have a little bit of latitude here in what you do. You can join with the crowd. But he doesn't do that, and why? Well, verse 24. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. Do you understand that if Christ compromised on even one thing, if he sinned even one sin, that he couldn't be your Savior, you'd die and go to hell with no hope. But he took all of your sins on him so that you wouldn't die and go to hell. And if he was willing to suffer all, do you think that you don't owe him all? The disciple is not above his master. He took it all. And the question is, what would you do for him? When fire tired, they said it's not a problem. How do Christians get around these things? I mean, obviously what I've just said to you is, should be on the mind of every Christian. You recognize that it's true. We shouldn't compromise. We shouldn't sin against the Lord. Everybody recognizes it. So why do we? Why, why, what are Christians thinking? And why do they think they can do this? Well, in Thyatira, it's sort of like this. Grace is enough to cover our sins. We know this. We're saved by God's grace. And that grace is big enough to cover all of our sins. And we have a license to sin because God is big enough. And we can still indulge ourselves. And we'll still be covered by God's grace. We'll still be okay. I said a moment ago, didn't I? Nobody loses their salvation who's a believer in Jesus Christ. Obviously then, grace is bigger than all of our sins. So we can just sin. And grace will cover it. Check that argument out with Jesus and Paul. According to them, grace is not a license to sin. Now the doctrine under consideration in Thyatira is sanctification. Can we be less holy than God demands? Will Christ hold on to a church that does not discipline those that are in sin? And further, is there any possibility that he keeps one 
in his church that encourages others to sin. That's the Jezebel. But we have an answer in the next verse. Fourthly, we want to look at the prediction of discipline. Verse 21, Revelation 2. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Now let's back up a minute to the suffering Christ. How bad was the suffering of Christ? Well, he was the eternal God, rejected by the eternal God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that was the cross, cry from the cross that so perplexed Luther that he said, how can this be? God forsaking God. The sins of Thyatira were agonizing to Christ. These are the types of sins that caused the Father to reject Christ. So what is it like then for him to see Christians that he gave his life for so easily mistreat him by trampling the blood of his cross under their feet? Why does God have patience with such people? But he does. He's long-suffering. He's far more gracious to us than we are to him. He gives time and space to repent. I can tell you that right now, sitting here. You may be in sin and he's giving you time and space to repent. Now consider this. He, he watched them prostitute themselves with false gods. That's bad. That's bad stuff. He watched them bow to idols and gobble up unholy sacrifices and join in filthy worship. But still, he's calling them a church. How did he stand to do that? He's merciful. He's patient. He gives time for us to recognize the wrong and to repent and to come back. He should have snuffed them out immediately. That's what we would do. But not him, because he's kind and long-suffering. And did you know the Lord has been waiting a long time? He's been waiting a long... He's been patient a long time with, with people. The Bible says that God is long-suffering towards the wicked world. This world should have been gone a long time ago. So what is it God's waiting for? Well, the answer is a few pages back in 2 Peter 3. Let's turn back to that. 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, Pastor Plaskett read these verses last week where Peter describes the wickedness of a world that grows worse and worse every year. Things go on that we never thought possible. There's some bad stuff that goes on in the world. After our first Bible study in Romans, Leno said that Paul was strengthening the church at Rome in their belief of the doctrines of Christ. And he said, we're dealing with people in our city that don't believe there is a God. They're so wicked that they deny what God wrote on their heart. Well, the Apostle Paul and John here had very little to do with atheism. People in their time didn't know the true God, but they didn't deny there is a God. But today we have atheists right here in our neighborhood. And so we have to ask the question, why is this neighborhood still standing? Why didn't this one burn down? One's up north burned down. Why not this one? If, you, if you've ever gone out into our neighborhood, as I have and some of you have, 
There's atheists out there. There's people that deny that there isn't a God, there's a God at all. So why didn't God rain down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah here? Why doesn't He send another Noahic flood? What's God waiting for? Here's our answer. 2 Peter 3, verse 7, starting there. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is God waiting on? Verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. So what is God waiting on? He's waiting on some that are still to be saved. God is waiting on some that He has called to salvation, but they have not yet obtained that salvation. His elect are mingled with the world, and they are sinners that must obtain their salvation. The year, the month, the day, the hour of Christ's return is dependent upon the last one that God has determined that He will save. He waits until then. And when that happens, so does verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The last one saved is a secret known only to God. I wouldn't be waiting if I was anybody, because that secret is known only to God. When that last day comes, when that last one comes, the Lord comes as a thief, and no one knows when, and He'll blow this universe up and blast Blast it with intense heat, and it's all gone. Well, let's localize that to Thyatira. These things are also true on an immediate level. There was a day when the last person in that area would be saved. The last person that could be influenced by the church at Thyatira was saved. And so the church lost its usefulness to the cause of Christ. They reach no one because now you have a church that can't have people say because they don't have the truth. The Lord warned them, there's a day that's approaching and so you need to come back. Now for those who compromised in persecution, he promised more persecution. He controls that. Um, sucking up to the world only sucks them further down. You can't win with the world because Christ... God controls the world. You're not going to gain by resisting Him, and He rewards you according to your deeds. How God deals with you is determined by the way you deal with Him. So believers find no peace anywhere but in obedience. And unbelievers never find peace anywhere if they don't repent. So this letter ends with two possible outcomes. Two outcomes. First, judgment for non-repentance. The worst form of punishment for a Christian is death. Now, we're not going to experience the second death. That's death in hell. We learned that from the church at Smyrna. Christians don't fear death because we're afraid we're going to go to hell. Unfaithful Christians, though, 
can be terrorized by death. Why? Because in their chastisement, God gives them no peace in death. Sometimes the sins of Christians go on too long, and he chastises with death. That happened in Corinth. Uh, They abused the Lord's Supper. They did some of the very same things that we see in Thyatira. Why might a Christian fear death? Even though you're a saved person, why is it that there are some Christians that do just come down to this, this hour and they fear death? Why? Well, there might be a lot of physical suffering that God would spare otherwise. There can be anxiety in a Christian's life about what will happen to their loved ones. What's going to happen to my wife? What will happen to my children? Who's going to take care of them if I die? Why does Christ do that? Why does he take away that that feeling of security and blessedness? Well, he does that because he wants the churches to know. He searches the heart. This is a warning to all of us that he's serious and that we are not to presume upon God's grace. Grace is not that license to sin. No one escapes his righteous judgment. Is that cruel of him to act that way? No, it's not, because you've got to think of the consequences. If Christians fail in their duty, then there's no one to witness to his elect in the world. They must be one, and Christ is not going to let you hinder their salvation. And so, he'll remove you when you get in the way of the gospel. Does God bring all of his elect to salvation? Absolutely, he does, and he does it in his time, and you are not going to hinder his time. Now you go back to the ones in verse 19. Here's the remnant that's faithful. What happens to them if the church fails or it falls? God said, I'm not going to forget your faithfulness. What God does with them contrasts to what he does with the others. There's no judgment for them. They become judges. So that's the second outcome that can happen here. If you're faithful, they're judges for the remnant. These are people who come, become a part of God's rule. Verse 24, But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, or gone astray, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father and I will give him the morning star. That's different, isn't it? It's different than what he said to the others. Unfaithfulness has its type of reward, and faithfulness has an infinitely better reward. Some of them wouldn't listen to Jezebel. They didn't stoop to the depths of Satan. Have you thought that the Lord describes your unfaithfulness as a dive into the depths of Satan? Those are stark terms. But when souls hang in the balance, what are we to say but that bad Christians with bad testimonies help Satan do his dirty work? Now think of the contrast. Churches that will not teach truth, churches that ignore the Bible, churches that become entertainment churches, churches that embrace immorality, those are contrasted with those who explore the deep things of God. And which church do you want to be? Do you want to be the church that goes deep down with Jesus Christ? Or do you want to be the church that goes deep down with Satan? You get these things. You get these kinds of rewards. If you go down deep with God, you'll be a part of God's government. 
and you'll help rule over nations, but go deep with Satan and you get tribulation and death. Christ will allow you to rule with him as he rules the nations with a rod of iron. I've told you in the beginning, beginning of these series of messages, that these, this particular letter is weighted with doctrine. Small church in a small town gets the most doctrine. And unfortunately, we can't deal with all the implications of the text. We're already late. But I don't want to forget to mention this part, that Revelation is about end times prophecy. You, you know that, I hope. And end times prophecy is the subject of endless speculation. The interpretations are wide and varied. Some believe that Christ will not have a literal kingdom on the earth. They say the kingdom is now. It's spiritual. We're living in it now. And they have a hard time interpreting these verses. If there is no literal kingdom, then when will Christians rule the world? When will we reign over Satan? When will we have power over the nations? If the kingdom is now, as many claim, where is Satan bound? And that's what the Bible says he will be in the kingdom. He'll be bound. And where do Christians rule anywhere on the earth? Where? Well, some say, no, it means heaven. Talking about ruling in heaven. Well, who do we rule over in heaven? We rule over the people in hell? They don't need to be ruled. They're, they're cast off. Hell is a forgotten place. People that are in heaven don't have anything to do with people that are in hell. That's one of hell's most frightening aspects. Hell is eternal punishment, abandonment from God. It's a lake of fire where the lost spend to eternity. That has no consequence for heaven. Hell is gone, forever cast off, no memory. There's no need to rule there. So the promises of the verse can't be true unless there's a real kingdom that will come to this earth. Both Old and New Testaments converge on that. Didn't we just read it in Isaiah? Yes, Christ will have a kingdom on earth. So the king of righteousness will rule with absolute authority and his people will rule with him. Now, in that day, when Christ comes to rule, he's patient with no one. His patience has already run out. There's no patience to wait on people to repent or do anything else. They will submit to his rod of iron or be broken like a potter's vessel. Now consider again how the Lord always encourages with appropriate words. Here's Thyatira, the small city that we talked about. They have no strategic military importance. They're no good to Rome, not in this. They're, they're not a protection for Rome. They lie, they are located on a road between Smyrna and Pergamos, two great cities, but they're not like either of them. They're small, they are insignificant. But this is the city that the Lord says to them, you are going to rule with a rod of iron. And when he said that, that raised in their mind the strength of Rome. All the empires that existed before, none of them had the brushing uh, or the, the, the bruising, crushing strength of Rome. Others rule. Others conquer. Rome rules with devastation. They crushed opposition with no power to resist, and so they are referred to as the empire with a rod of iron. Jesus played on that imagery. This is vivid. It's real. Christians in Thyatira will rule with a rod of iron. So this means that the oppressors 
the ones that are tempting them not to follow Christ, but to join the guilds, to live as they live, those oppressors in the city are nothing. Nobody fights God and wins. Why even think about apostatizing? Why? There isn't any hope for gain. The destiny is to be broken like iron shatters a clay pot. And then finally, there's this last promise of verse 28. I will give him the morning star. That's the best of all. This is the best thing we get. What is the morning star? Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. The morning star is Jesus. Have you ever sung the song, Take this whole world, but give me Jesus? If you take the world over Jesus, that's an insane choice, isn't it? That's a trade you don't consider, or you shouldn't, but we do. I mean, if we're going to be honest with each other, this is what we're always considering. Will it be the world, or will it be Jesus? And so we try to hold on to the world with one hand, and Jesus with the other. And so it's as if we put Jesus and the world in a scale and we're going to decide which one of these is worth the most. And you know what the decision usually is for most people, many Christians? The world has more value than Jesus. So the world wins. It wins at work. It wins in our home. And it wins in churches. It goes on all of the time. I only need to look at Berean's congregation to see who carries the most weight. Is it the world or is it Jesus? Just stop all that. Read what he says in verse 29. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Has all the exposition of these other churches and this one fallen on deaf ears? Take the whole world but give me Jesus. Why? He's the bright and morning star. Have you decided that you'll follow him? Can he count on you? Or are you one of those that Jesus is standing by waiting for you to repent? There's a time limit on that. He waits and he watches and if you don't repent, time expires and he goes into action. He searches the heart and the scripture says, be sure your sins will find you out. You need to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we spent together today in your word. How solemn should be our approach to your word. Too many Christians have decided the world is better. They've compromised. Like Christians at Thyatira, they've compromised. And because of that, the church has no power. Because of that, there's only a few that are causing us to hold on. Thankfully, Lord, in our church, we feel the majority of us are, are trying to do what you'd have us to do. But still, there are those members of the church that are just barely on, hanging on to the edge of what happens around here. No commitment to the church, no jobs in the church, nothing to do in the church, no desire for the church. Just show up every now and then. Lord, have we taken you or have we taken the world? I pray, Lord, you'd help us to choose you, serve you with everything that we have. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.